from the newsroom of the Washington Post. Hello, hey you. Here's Cindy Isabek from the Washington Post. Hi, this is Beth Reinhardt at the Washington Post. It's Lori Artani over at the Post. I'm. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, August 24th. Today, secret recordings of Trump's sister, a community hit hard by COVID, and the brand beloved by women in the Trump world. I mean, this hatred. Nobody's equivocal about Donald. Oh, yes. People will say to me, oh, well, you know, no, he's doing an idea. But, but nobody, you know, you either love them if you're in the base or you're just saying, holy sh**, this is awful. You are listening to part of 15 hours of secretly recorded tapes of the president's sister. Donald's out for Donald, period. Marianne Trump Berry, a former federal judge. These tapes were recorded by her niece, Mary Trump. I just don't get it. No. Because he doesn't give anybody anything. No. Who was the author of the best-selling book that came out a few weeks ago that excoriated President Trump. Michael Cranish is a political investigative reporter for The Post. So it's, it's the phoniness of it all. It's the phoniness. And, <sighs> and, and this cruelty... Donald's cruel. I've been writing about the Trump family for four or five years now, but the siblings really didn't say much. You really never heard from the siblings other than a quote here or there during the campaign. The ethos within the family was basically not to say anything negative about Donald Trump. You just didn't hear it. So these tapes really bring us inside the family dynamic in a very personal and candid way, really like nothing else we've heard. watch Fox News. I said, no. Why not? I said, I don't watch much television at all. Pause. What do you do? I read. Pause. What do you read? Books. You don't watch Fox. So talk to me a little bit more about who exactly Marianne Trump Berry is and, and what is her relationship like with her brother? Marianne Trump Berry is a very distinguished individual in her own right. She's the older sister of President Trump. She's 83. He is 74. So she's probably one of the few people on the planet who has known Donald Trump his entire life, obviously knew him from the time he was born have mostly had a close relationship with him. But as I write in the story, there are several times in which the relationship wasn't quite as close. There's a really interesting revelation in the tapes where Judge Barry is talking about a rift that developed between her and Donald Trump. He once tried to take credit for me. And this stems from an incident in the early 1980s when Marianne Trump Barry was seeking to be on the federal bench And she asked Donald Trump to help her with then-President Reagan to get nominated. He had Roy Cohn call Reagan, who had to be a woman appointed to, you know, in New Jersey to a federal court, because Reagan's running for re-election. And he needed, he was desperate for the female vote. She said Cohn did that, and that the next day, 
President Reagan nominated her to the federal bunch. Uh, I probably would have gotten it on the merits anyway. Reagan was running for re-election. He needed a woman. A woman, yeah. In the tapes, she says that ever since, Donald Trump would always say, basically, I made you who you are, would never let her forget this. And she says to Mary, you know, at one point that she told Donald Trump, if you say that one more time. Well, where would you be without me? I say, you, you mentioned what? You say that one more time, I will level you. And so Mary Trump secretly recorded these tapes. And how did they end up with you? Well, in her book, Mary Trump wrote that President Trump had paid someone to take his SATs to get into college. So I had interviewed Mary Trump for a follow-up story, and I asked her, as did others, you know, can you give us more information about this? What was the source of this information? And so in response to that, a week or so ago, she got back to me and said, Basically, through her associate, you know, I'm going to give you the tape in which Judge Barry is the one who gave this information. And he went to Fordham for one year, and then he got into University of Pennsylvania. I guess he had somebody to take his take the exams. No way. And he had and somebody take his entrance exams, SATs or whatever. Yeah. Oh Jesus! <laughs> Doesn't prove that that happened, but it does show that Mary Trump's source for this was her aunt. So I listened to the tape, and when I heard the tape, I then asked Mary Trump, well, you know, how many hours did you tape? And are there other tapes that we could hear? After considering it, they agreed to give me a number of other pieces of audio of things that her aunt said. So tell me more about what is actually in these tapes that you have gotten a hold of from Mary Trump. Well, in one of the tapes, for example, Judge Barry has heard that President Trump has said, maybe he was joking, but it's not clear. He said on Fox News during the time at which Mexican refugees and others were coming over the southern border and parents were being separated from their children, children being put in these cramped confinement areas while the parents waited for lengthy uh, court hearings to start. They think they have to wait two years to see all their cases. You need more judges. How close is that? Your sister's a judge. She knows right, how tough that right. is. Maybe I'll have to put her at the border. <laughs> Why not? But, you know. She heard that and she was appalled. It's, like, it's mind-boggling. But that's all about his base. All he wants to do is appeal to his base. He has no principles. I'm none. None. And his base, I mean, my God, if you were a religious person, you want to help people, not do this. So, you know, that's quite a, a damning quote from the president's sister talking about what he is doing on the border. It's a change of stories, a lack of preparation, the lying, the holy shit. But he's appealing to the base, what they're doing with the kids. What are some of the moments or the reasons that Judge Barry talks about for why she thinks her brother is unprincipled or unethical? Well, the quote about no principles comes when she's referring to hearing Donald Trump saying, maybe I'll send you to the border. The quote about you can't trust him comes after a conversation in which she and Mary are talking about the bankruptcies. Just sort of begs the question, like, what exactly has he accomplished on his own? Uh, I don't know. Nothing. Well, I think he has the answer. five bankruptcies. <laughs> Good point. He did accomplish those all by himself. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. That is very true. <laughs> you, you can't trust him. 
And has Judge Barry said anything publicly about the fact that these secret recordings of her, you know, that they were made in the first place, but also that they are now being shared publicly? Judge Barry has not said anything about um, what's written about her in Mary Trump's book. And I reached out to her before the story. I've sought her comment a couple of times, and I just simply did not hear back. I also reached out to the White House for comment before the story was published. They never responded. After the story was put online, the White House issued a statement from Trump, not a spokesman, in which he basically said he's accomplished a lot, meaning him, President Trump. And then he said about the story, he said, who cares? He made no reference to his sister, who's quoted in the story in the tapes. He didn't try to refute anything that was said. He didn't say it was fake news, as he often does. He just simply responded by saying, who cares? Well, to that question from the president, I'm curious about what you think about why people should care about this. To me, you know, I find it striking that this is coming out right before the beginning of the Republican National Convention. And, and you know, I think that a lot of what comes out of these conventions or really the purpose of these conventions is basically politicians serving as character witnesses for the person who's running for president. You have a week of everyone talking about how great Joe Biden is, all the different times that Joe Biden was kind to them or was a good leader. I'm sure that's what you're going to hear about President Trump for the next several days. But it's such a striking juxtaposition to hear something recorded behind the scenes from someone who knows the president very well, who is saying the opposite. Well, conventions are often about character witnesses saying how great the nominee is. And you are going to see this week a number of family members saying wonderful things about President Trump. In the Monday convention tonight, Donald Trump Jr., the president's son is going to get up and uh, certainly is going to say wonderful things about his father. This is really unusual. You do have cases in history where siblings of a president have, you know, created mischief for the president. Maybe they've tried to profit off the president's name, that kind of thing. This is quite different because, first of all, this is a former federal judge. She was very respected. She served a long time in the federal bench. And, you know, she was quite accomplished in her own right. To hear her speaking this candidly in a way that we've never heard before is very striking. So, you know, I think for people listening to this, for readers, they can go online and they can listen to this audio themselves and make up their own minds. Whatever you would say about Judge Barry, you know, these are her words and they speak for themselves. That's really what's so striking in the end. You hear, you know, these very candid comments, the inflection of her voice in these conversations that she never knew would become public. Michael Cranish is a political investigative reporter for The Post. I went to South Florida to talk to people who are part of the Guatemalan Mayan community in that part of the state, which is one of the biggest indigenous Guatemalan populations in the United States. It is maybe the hardest hit community in the U.S. right now during the the coronavirus pandemic. In the U.S.? Obviously, there's no list of of communities that have been hard hit, but, but this one is devastated by the virus by any metric at all the rates of infection within this community are astronomical. 
My name is Kevin Seif. I'm the Mexico and Central America Bureau Chief for The Post. The reason is pretty clear. I mean, very early on in the pandemic, the indigenous Guatemalans in South Florida were told that they were essential workers. Hmm. They were told to keep working. So to keep working in the, the fields of Florida and farms of Florida, to work as landscapers and construction workers all across Miami, Broward, and Palm Beach counties. And that was still considered essential work. That was still considered essential work. I spoke to a woman in Lake Worth named Rosemary. She was telling me how, you know, even after the family became aware of the virus, her husband was told that the landscaping company was deemed essential. He was going to have to continue working. They initially tried to maintain some kind of distance when he came back from work, and it became pretty clear quite quickly that that was impossible. And I think within a couple of weeks, they, they all got sick. So a lot of these people are working on, in some of the wealthiest communities in America, on golf courses, gated communities, beach communities, and they were told very early on that they were supposed to show up at work just as they did before the pandemic. And so they did. Um, they did in part because they were told that if they didn't, they might lose their jobs. And in part because these are undocumented populations that need the money to live, to, to buy food, to pay their rent. And there's a very thin margin between sort of maintaining a very basic life and not. And so... So they kept working. And how quickly did it become clear that that was going to have really grave effects on the the health of the community and the the rates of COVID infections there? You know, if you, if you remember, during this sort of early days, Florida was not New York. It wasn't one of the, the hardest hit states during those early days. And it seems like the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, that, that he was bragging about the fact that Florida was doing so well. Because you got a lot of people in your profession who waxed poetically for weeks and weeks about how Florida was going to be just like New York. Wait two weeks. Florida's going to be next. Just like Italy. Wait two weeks. Well, hell, we're eight weeks away from that. And it hasn't happened. Not and so I think there was a period where the work continued and people didn't get sick. And there was a sense of like, all right, well, maybe somehow we've avoided the worst of this thing. And, and the workers themselves had their own theories. You know, Some of them thought that, well, maybe this proves that the virus isn't real if we haven't gotten it yet. And then at some point, sort of late May, June. Here's what we've been seeing in terms of uh, the, the, the cases that are coming in. And I know there's a lot of discussion about a number of cases and all this. And uh, while the number of cases is uh, is something that, that you look at. Um, the virus just lands in southern Florida and specifically in this Guatemalan community, and it, and it explodes. Is, uh, for every case that's detected through, through a positive PCR test, there are probably 10 other infections out there. And in addition to the fact that this is happening because so many of these people were considered essential workers and they were going out to jobs even as the, the pandemic was getting worse in Florida, what are some of the other factors that have exacerbated this for people who are in this community? You really couldn't think of a worse scenario for people to get sick. So the workers are picked up every morning in converted school buses 
And they're picked up at around sometimes five, six o'clock in the morning. It's almost all men, sometimes 30 or 40 men will get into the same school bus and they'll often commute for up to two hours. And then when they go back home after work, they go back to, to homes where often a dozen or more people are living in the same very small, very small house. I went to one apartment, a two bedroom apartment where there are 12 people living in the same very, very small space. And so they're just constantly surrounded by other people. So the idea of social distancing, either when on your way to work, at work, or when you're back at your home is just impossible. So, so tell me about some of the people that you talked to and what they've experienced as part of this. I grew up in South Florida, spent a lot of time very close to these communities. I had no idea that there are 60,000, between 60 and 80,000 indigenous Guatemalans living just in Palm Beach County alone. And I also didn't know that they really are the backbone of South Florida's labor force. There is no job in Indian town. Few, few little things. Or they, they were mostly for landscaping. Secondly, in golf courses. Thirdly, nurseries and then construction. Those are the main, the main jobs right here. So I, I talked to, to Juan Carlos Lasso, who's the director of religious education at uh, the church in Indian town. And, and he was telling me a little bit about sort of what this has felt for felt like for the community and also the like structural issues that made avoiding the virus really impossible. We immediately knew that this community were not going to be hit by jobless because mostly these people are essential workers. Essential has to work. <laughs> you have to maintain everything so beautiful right here. Construction is essential. Undoc- many of them undocumented, but still yeah. essential work. Exactly. Oh, yeah, mostly these people are undocumented. They had to manage that. You know, this country has to keep on going, period. What did you think when you heard that these guys were landscapers, but they were considered essential workers? What did you think about that? I started realizing the importance of labor right here. There is no way that, I'm sorry about an Anglo or another person is going to be under the heat 12 hours, 14 hours, over there and up, the beauty is being kept by the essential. The essential are the Hispanics. There would be no perfectly manicured gated communities or golf courses or new sort of construction booms in South Florida, if not for this indigenous Guatemalan population that has arrived in Florida in waves, first in the 1980s fleeing the Civil War, then in the late 1990s as a lot of single men came looking for work. And then again, over the last few years, a lot of families have come and teenagers have come, sometimes fleeing gang violence in Guatemala and sometimes just fleeing one of the poorest countries in the Western Hemisphere. And these teenagers that come from Guatemala, they are very strong. They have a quality inside, they have something that is is resilient. These people have been, remember the war in Guatemala? Kidnapped, raped. And they decide to forget what happened in Guatemala and start a new life. And so I talked to a lot of people who were of those waves. And they told me both how like enormously grateful they were for the, the jobs that they have and the wages that they have, most of which they're sending back to Guatemala. But then also this sort of weird moment that that arrived a few months ago when they were told to keep working, even though they started to get sick and their friends started to get sick. 
I went to the, the Guatemalan Maya Center, which is in Lake Worth, just as they were handing off the results to people who'd come to the testing a few days prior. And there's this long line of people outside. And there was one woman, I was waiting with her in line. She told me how her, her husband was working at a landscaping company in Palm Beach County, was told that he was an essential worker, and so kept showing up to work. The rest of the family was all quarantined at home, being as careful as they could be. But of course, their husband was out, out working, and so when he got sick, they all got sick. And she opened it and she didn't understand. Um, she didn't understand what the results were, so she, she went to someone, someone who works at the center at this community organization. What were, because the, the results were in Spanish? Or? The results were in Spanish, and I think it was just like a little complicated, in part because of the language, and in part because it was just sort of this, this medical form. Mo- most of the people I talked to had, had never been to hospitals in the U.S., had never seen doctors in the U.S. The whole idea of the American medical system was pretty foreign. The person at the community organization looked at the paper and told the woman that she was negative, and the woman just sort of like, thank God. At that center, every time they test, more than a third of the people who test are sick. Wow. Basically a 35% positivity rate. That is really high and really bad news. I was trying to understand why the rate is so high. I mean, part of it is as I said, just the conditions in which they're working and living. Um, can you tell me maybe to start your, your name and your, your title? Yeah, my name is Samuel Matos, a medical doctor. Also with a- I spoke to Samuel Matos Pastidas, who is a contact tracer now focusing on the Latino community and specifically on the indigenous Guatemalan community. For me, it's like a crisis within a, a crisis, Okay. And he was trying to, he was explaining to me that, you know, for someone who's doing contact tracing right now in this community, it's sort of like you find one case. And if you found one, you found a hundred, basically. They just, the, the cases explode so quickly because of the proximity in which people are living and working. On the other part, they don't have access, for example, to government benefits, like a stimulus checks. Okay. So pretty much they are forced just to keep going on that. And this is sad because at the same time they're spreading the disease. A lot of the people in this community speak Spanish as a second language and don't read Spanish. Um, they read and speak Mayan dialects as, as a first language. And when the outbreak started, none of the, the health promotional material from the state was translated into those languages. And so has there been a recognition from, from local officials or state officials that this is a community that needs particular help? especially when they have been serving as the backbone of a lot of, you know, continued business since the start of the pandemic and told that they needed to keep going to work because they were essential workers. In late June, the governor made a, a sort of controversial statement saying that, you know, it's quote unquote, overwhelmingly Hispanic, overwhelmingly Hispanic laborers who were responsible for the surge in cases. Contact to the households and out of 15 households, found 53 positive cases out of 15 households. That, that surge in cases, of course, being the surge that is that is sort of making him look bad publicly. And, and the tone of that seemed like he was kind of blaming them for bringing this upon themselves and also saying that, that the pandemic in Florida isn't as serious as people are making it out to be because it's really only affecting this one community. 
Exactly. That was the way that it was interpreted, especially by by the workers themselves who felt like, you know, not only are they not receiving the support, both medical support, financial support during the pandemic that they need, but then they're also sort of being blamed for, you know, for, for the increased caseload. And, and of course, all of that is related, or a lot of that is related to housing. Lots of people living in the same houses. Housing is, is a real problem right here. And it has been a, a real problem many years since they began. There is no housing available right here. Juan Carlos sort of walked me through what it's felt like for the community as the number of cases has increased and the number of, the number of deaths has increased. You know, they don't want to see what's happening right here until a pandemic comes and shows up, you know. Now they are blaming because they live together. But you didn't solve the problem before that. You are know? they actually blaming that? So all the, the public housing issues that have been ignored for so many years are now having this enormous consequence when it comes to who's getting sick. And how is the community like dealing with with? the scale of death right now? You know, so much of the way the impact of this virus is felt is on like little micro communities, you know, this Guatemalan mining community that a lot of Floridians don't even know about. It is in its own city. It is in its own county. It's like a little drop in this massive, you know, urban area. There isn't a real sense of how badly hit it's been. I went to the to the church, the Catholic church in this place called Indian Town, which is another really, really important place for the Guatemalan Mayan community. The, the church now is just like backlogged with funerals. Every few days there's a new funeral. A lot of the older people who've died in the community, their bodies have been frozen so they could be sent back to Guatemala. And Guatemalan men and women who arrived in the early 80s fleeing the Civil War, they're the reason the community exists in the first place, have died. The idea of an, an entire generation of, of like pioneers dying at the same time, that to me drove home like what this feels like within the community. They don't see it as a national or a global crisis. They see it as this thing that is like really wiping out an entire generation of the people who who created the community in the first place. Kevin Seif is the Mexico and Central America bureau chief for The Post. One more thing. The Republican National Convention starts tonight. And if you have an eye for fashion, you may notice a certain shared style among the women who are appearing. Post-fashion critic Robin Gabon has been looking into the new IT label for women in the administration. After going down a rabbit hole of social media, I discovered that there was one brand that a huge number of the women in the Trump orbit tended to favor. I'm Robin Gavon, and I cover the fashion industry for The Washington Post. And the brand in question is Chiara Boney. 
the women in the Trump orbit gravitate to Caraboni in part for the same reason that a lot of customers do, which is that they are very feminine in a sort of traditional way. I describe them as being power dressing for the male gaze. They travel really well and they are flattering on a lot of different figures. But I also think that one of the reasons is because the the owner of the showroom where the dresses are sold here in the U.S., which is also the largest market for the brand, is an incredibly gregarious social guy who is also very friendly with a lot of the women in the Trump world, much to the chagrin of Chiara Boney herself. So many fashion brands have either actively shunned the administration or have just been very silent when they've discovered that a member of the administration or a supporter has been wearing the brand. Chiara Boney herself, she is not involved in American politics by any means, but she also stands in disagreement with many of the policy initiatives from the administration and, you know, isn't supportive of the tone of the administration. Where we stand now as a culture, politics has woven its way into every corner of the culture and nothing is really immune. And whether or not it will ever again be separate, I I don't know. Robin Gavon is the fashion critic for The Washington Post. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. If you listen to Post Reports on a podcast app like Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, we'd love for you to take the time to rate our show and leave a review. We find them valuable to read, and even more, they help other podcast listeners discover our show. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. 